Join us now on The Collector Show with Harold Nickel. All right, it is The Collector Show for another week. I'm Harold Nickel. Coming up in the interview segment of the show, the second interview with Tim O'Brien from Ripley's Believe It or Not, and I think probably one of the more interesting collections we've talked about was the one from Robert Ripley, who had, I guess, oddities, but I don't mean that in a in a bad way, interesting things that most people never saw that he collected as a result of all his many travels. And, of course, the world of Ripley has expanded tremendously, and Tim's going to tell us more about that. And then in the Found Collectible of the Week, this week, Heather Gallegos, our very good friend, is going to talk with us about places you can visit, unusual collections, maybe not as unusual as Mr. Ripley's, but things that are certainly noteworthy, fun to look at, and inexpensive, and reachable by car. You don't have to spend a lot of money to go see any of these things. So if you want to combine travel, vacationing, getting away from it all, and collecting, or looking at other people's collections, Heather has the right prescription for you. Of course, now coming up, the news segment. This is a story from the Seattle Post-Intelligencer about a man who collects labels, but not just any kind of labels. He collects salmon can labels. His name is Carl Wedland, and one of the things he was asked to do at his job at a salmon cannery was make coffee and clean bathrooms and storage areas, and it's in those storage rooms that Mr. Wedland found a hidden treasure, shiny, colorful, unused salmon can labels. They were all destined for the dump, but he saved a lot of them. I'd go into these label rooms, and my boss would say, clean them up, said Wedland, who was in his 20s at the time. Once, Wedland drove four truckloads of labels to the dump, where they likely were burned, but many of those labels escaped the incinerator, Wedland brought home thousands, some by the handful, others by the hundreds, all wrapped in the plastic they were shipped in. My dad would say, what the heck are you doing with those? They'll never be worth anything, said Wedland, who's now 70 years old. I wish you could see them now. Like labels on fruit, crates, and cigar boxes, vintage salmon can labels are in demand by collectors and decorators, said Dwayne Rogers, who's the owner of The Label Man, a Chico, California-based online business that sells labels. Collecting salmon can labels is more popular in the Northwest than other regions, Rogers said. The salmon stuff is pretty competitive. Salmon has become an endangered species, Rogers said, which adds a lot of draw for the collector. I don't think salmon, I don't think salmon are endangered, maybe certain kinds. But no, I don't think uh, I don't think salmon's in danger. But anyway, a hard-to-find salmon can label could sell for up to six hundred dollars. He said many are worth between twenty and fifty, according to various dealers online. So there you have it. This is like I say from the July Fourth edition of the Seattle Post Intelligencer. If you're going to go read the whole thing, but collecting salmon can labels in the news this week on the Collector Show. Okay, coming up next, our conversation with Tim O'Brien of Ripley's Believe It or Not, and then later on, the Found Collectible of the Week with Heather Gallegos, all coming up next on The Collector Show. I'm Harold Nichol.
Well, it's time for the interview segment of this week's program, and you'll remember last week we were talking with Mr. Tim O'Brien, who represents the Ripley Entertainment Company, and we had only just really gotten off to a good start in the conversation with Tim, and he's gracious enough to come back with us this week on The Collector's Show. And Tim, welcome back. Hey, welcome back to yourself. It's been a wonderful week. Thank you. <laughs> I thought, a bunch of whole, uh, thought about a whole bunch more good stuff to talk about. Oh, man, that's great, because, you know, the thing that impressed me when um, I first started thinking about doing a show on the Ripley Collections, and we talked a little bit about this last week, but it seemed to me that not only was Robert Ripley an accomplished artist and an accomplished uh, journalist, but really became an icon in American popular culture by having some of the first travel logs, travel-related programs where he would travel to uh, unusual places and there'd be movie tone movies about them, some of the very first work in the kind of exposition that I think we all take for granted today with his uh, expo at the 1933 World's Fair. And so this week I want to I want us to expand a little bit more on how that evolved into some of the places where the public can go and see these collections today. The jump from the 1933 World's Fair to all of the places we can go today to see collections. Tell us how that began to evolve. Following his exposition in 1933, which is a huge success, he went on and was in uh, five or six World's Fairs through the years. He went to a lot of the major state fairs. And again, he never had a permanent facility. Mm -hmm. They were all set up specifically for uh, that particular World's Fair or exposition. And he died in 1949. And in 1950, we actually opened our first, believe it or not, permanent museum in St. Augustine, Florida. Okay. And that's still, that's still in existence today. Uh, it's still going strong. And we now have 30, believe it or not, museums in 12 countries. Man. And we've got three more on the slate to open either later this year or during 2010. How many more? We have we have one in Korea, yeah, one in Mexico, oh, man. one in Australia, and one in Bahrain, all on the table to open in the next twelve months. So the popularity of Ripley and his um, collections and the the whole believe it or not movement is uh, multi generational. You were in Florida capturing um, the attention of tourists there before the Disney people showed up. I'm really getting a sense that Robert Ripley was quite a visionary. Is that a fair assessment? He was. He was uh, a quirky visionary. Yeah. But he would he would be absolutely totally floored if he saw what his company had turned into. It's um and he didn't have the aspirations to open museums all over the country, all over the world. He he didn't look beyond that. He was very involved in the day-to-day production of his uh, cartoon. He was involved in collecting and doing a lot of other things. And you know, in 1949, we talked last week about his pioneering radio efforts. Yes. But in 1949, he was one of the first people to ever have a regularly scheduled television show. Oh, no kidding. And I... each, week, each week, he would have a specific topic. He had a theme. 
and it translated on the television much better than it did radio. And he was able to show things and talk about things and have guests on. And in his 13th show, he was talking to the man who created TAPS, you know, the military funeral sure. custom. Yeah, I know, and he was I know it well. about uh, funeral customs. And the guy was playing TAPS. Ripley grabbed his chest and had a heart attack and dropped at this guy's feet. Oh, no. As he was playing on live television. And the he, he, he came uh, came back in the uh, behind stage when the camera shut off. He wasn't able to finish the show. But what happened was that he got up, he, he went home, and 12 hours later, he went to the hospital. Mm-hmm. And he never left. And two days later, he died. On wow. On 27th, 1949. And, you know, he went out as a believe it or not. <laughs> yeah, that's quite a story. That's, uh... And, uh, the, his, his, uh, his collection was sold to his, basically his brother. It was given to his brother in the will. And his broadcast and his publishing side was purchased at auction by uh, another, another man, a showman, who uh, was a circus impresario at that time. And... Through the years, through the early 50s, the, the two sides of the company were kind of, they worked together, but they were owned by two different people. Mm-hmm. By the end of the 50s, when there was a couple, uh, I think three different, believe it or not, museums in operation at that time, once uh, Doug, who was Ripley's brother, decided to get out of the business, he sold his side, the circus impresario, sold his side, the two were combined, and a guy by the name of Alec Rigby uh, bought both sides and was able to bring the company back together. And Alec and his partners actually owned the company until 1985 when our current owner bought it. So the company has only had like really three owners, including Ripley. And the cool thing about this, Harold, is the collection has stayed intact. It That's wasn't distributed. You don't find part of Ripley stuff in a basement bar somewhere. No. Uh, so we have archives that just won't stop. Any collector would salivate walking into our <laughs> vault, as we call it, a warehouse, uh, because we have so many collections that Ripley himself collected. And if you go into our paper side of our archives, you will find the original cartoon that he drew in 1918. Oh, boy. Plus all the substantiation that he had for it. And virtually every cartoon he ever drew, we have the original. Now, I also know from visiting your website that you guys publish a lot of books and sell a lot of books. Are all of your books involved with different kinds of uh, collections from Ripley, or are they about other types of things? Virtually all of the books published by Ripley Publishing since 1929 uh, are, believe it or not, type of books. Okay. We put out a book two years ago called In Search of the Shrunken Head. Oh, yeah. And that was like his travel log. It, it took through and uh, took us through some of his travels and how he discovered certain things and all. Uh, but, you know, if you take every book that has ever come off the printing press, uh, published by Ripley Publishing since 1929, you would have a stack of books 250 to 300 times taller than the Empire State Building. That's a bunch of books. <laughs> a bunch of books. <laughs> and, uh, the, uh, 
the popularity of his books through the years have been amazing. And then just six years ago, we came up with a whole new yearly series. And most people connote Ripley's books with these small paperback books with pen and ink drawn. Yes, that's what I think of. We were in school yeah. growing up. And today, though, you'd be amazed. Our The last series of books, we'll be coming out with our sixth in this annual series on August 4th. Okay. And it will have 2,500, believe it or not, in it. And the coolest thing about these books is the fact that full-color photographs. Oh, neat. You know, it, it's one thing to see. Like, my favorite photo in last year's book was this doctor holding an 84-pound tumor that he removed from a lady. And, you know, it was a, like a half-page picture. Now, you see the veins and everything in this tumor. Yeah. Uh, but if you saw that in a pen and ink drawing, it would not have nearly the impact. Well, not these days. Not, exactly. And the front of our books are, uh, are hardcover. They're oversized coffee table-sized books, and they have holographic covers. They're really cool. So, yeah, we still sell over a million books a year. The, the point you made a few minutes ago about um, being on the radio, um, we talked about this a little bit last week, but the thing that occurred to me about having a radio show like this was that you have to describe everything that he has. And he, moving over to television like he did and then going out the way he did to a, a very appropriate, if not ironic, tune <laughs> was the way to go. But Ripley's Believe It or Not is still on television. Tell us about the current series. Well, the current series is not in production now. It's strictly in syndication. Okay. Uh, it was filmed with Dean Kane in the years 2000 to 2003. 88 hour episodes were created. And, but that's still in syndication in uh, over 70 countries around the world. And it has been, uh, just last year it was picked up. I forget, two or three different countries in Eastern Europe picked it up, and the thing was translated into their particular language, mm-hmm. which is kind of cool. And then um, back in the 1980s, uh, Jack Palance had a show. Oh, okay. For four years, uh, along with his daughter, Holly. And then in the 50s, there were some knockoffs of the show. And then uh, TBS has done a couple dramatic episodes of who Ripley was and so forth through the years. And we are now in uh, planning stages of a new TV show, hopefully that would start next fall, not this coming fall, but a year from fall, uh, that would take it a kind of a different route than what it has been in the past. Well, we'll, we'll look forward to that. And, uh, boy, please let us know when, when that goes on the air, because um, I'm sure our listeners are going to want to know about that. And I read in the introduction last week that there was a movement or enthusiasm for a motion picture about Robert Ripley's life? Uh, we are so excited about that uh, with Paramount Films. Uh, they have the rights. Uh, the, the script has been approved, and now they're uh, putting it all together, and hopefully we'll start filming it uh, next year. And it, uh, right now it's starring Jim Carrey as Robert Ripley. Oh, cool. Certainly an accomplished and actor. This, this is an adventure uh, of film. This will take one segment of Ripley's life, as almost like an Indiana Jones type of film. Oh, sure. Uh, with him going through the uh, Orient, collecting various artifacts. So it, it sounds cool from what I've heard about it. And uh, hopefully it will become a reality. Well, 
we're big Jim Carrey fans here at our house, so I'm sure uh, we'll definitely go see it. And on your website, you also have a lot of material that people can can download and listen to with podcasting, which is kind of similar to the way this show is carried. Tell us about what we might hear if we visit a podcast on the Ripley website. Well, most of our podcasts are contemporary. Most of them were done similar to this one as far as just interviewing different people. Uh, the big thing is we don't call them podcasts. Oh, okay. Sorry. Podcasts. That's 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 good. You guys have a lot of fun at Ripley. With... Oh, you gotta. <laughs> Absolutely. We have, we have a ball. Uh, I mean, you, when you walk through airports with a shrunken head under your arm and the security makes you take it out and put it down, you know, you have a lot of fun with doing stuff like that. You're going to attract a lot of attention with yeah, shrunken heads. For a long time. For some reason, when I came on board, I found the coolest thing to take with me, and that was the world's largest hairball. <laughs> and it weighed it weighed about 12 pounds and was about the size of a basketball. It was a bovine hairball. Oh, man. And I didn't want to check it because I was afraid it would get hurt or anything. So I just ended up carrying it as carry-on luggage. <laughs> and you should have seen the looks that I would get. You know, uh, that, well, why are you carrying a basketball or whatever? And then it would go through the, I'd put it on the tray and put it through the scanner, and they would look at it. And I got the, that was the first view I got after I told them they let me walk around behind them, let me see what it looked like. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, you've got to have a sense of humor to really to, to do stuff like that. We, and we love it. We but, love it. I don't know. You have, you have to be a special type of person to work for real. Well, I think it would be a hoot to walk around with the world's biggest hairball. And um, <laughs> I, I think I'd do it on purpose just to see the kind of reactions that I get. Now, there are attractions everywhere where people who are planning their summer vacations can go to see a lot of the things that were or still are in the Ripley collection. Tell us about those. Well, we've got them pretty much in all corners of the country. And in Canada, Niagara Falls, Canada, down in Mexico. And then we have them also in uh, Malaysia and England and uh, Kuwait and Tokyo. Wow. But uh, uh, in, the, in the United States, we, we did some... Uh, some math here and found out that 54% of the population lives within a half a tank of gas from a Ripley's Believe It or Not. Yeah, if you go to the, their website, the uh, Ripley's Believe It or Not website, there are interactive maps that will show you where the sites are, and they're, and they're all over the place. And it's yeah, not... And they're in destination markets, mostly. They're in... We pick out locations where people are going to go to have fun. Absolutely. You know? Key West, Orlando, the most logical, Los Angeles, New York, Myrtle Beach, uh, Panama City Beach, San Antonio. You walk out of the Alamo in San Antonio and look across the street and there we are. A friend of mine was just in San Antonio and she told me that she had walked from the Alamo to the Ripley's Museum. And I thought that was that was pretty cool. It was. Now, we just got a brand new museum, a uh, little over a year old down been there 20 years and last year we opened a brand new one about twice the size right next to the old one and it was uh, it's, it's beautiful in turn i'm sorry go ahead no, i was just gonna say we've got them uh you know like i say in hollywood we've got them in san francisco we have them in jackson hole 
We have them in Newport, Oregon, Wisconsin Dells, Branson, Gatlinburg, Tennessee. So they're just about everywhere. And as I said, there there's a lot of other things to do because even though we we pride ourselves in great entertainment, you're, nobody's going to fly to Hollywood just to, just to visit our museum. Nobody's going to go to New York City just to see our museum. But it's like you say, they're part of their experience. With it. Yeah, and it's like you say, these are destination. San Antonio certainly is. Branson, Missouri certainly is. So um, you're going to go there to have fun anyway. So that's just that's just good planning on your part. And the cool thing about a Ripley's Museum, too, is that it, it doesn't create a huge commitment on your part. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, a couple hours, you can enjoy uh, a Ripley Museum. Of course, you can spend a lot longer in there or a lot less, depending on how much you read and how much you become involved in our interactive exhibits. But, uh, you know, it's a small cost for a small amount of time, and that's easy to work into virtually any uh, uh, any trip to any city. We, we like to call them half-day attractions. Now, how do you divide up the collection among the different museums? That is a an interesting question because it's very difficult. First of all, we try to get our iconic exhibits into every museum. Uh, our iconic exhibits would be torture and humiliation devices, uh, where we would have like a graveyard scene. Uh, all of our museums are divided into galleries. Mm-hmm. And everyone will have 10, 12, to 14 galleries. So we always have the torture chamber and yeah. the torture and humiliation device gallery. We always have the artwork gallery. You know, we're, we're not only gloom and doom and gross out, but mm-hmm. we've got some beautiful artwork. Ripley brought back some beautiful carved ivory and jade. Uh, we've got that beautiful uh, uh, sculptures that he brought back from the tribes of South Africa. Uh, on one hand, and then we have the Mona Lisa made out of burnt toast. <laughs> and we have a John Wayne, a full-size John Wayne portrait made out of laundry lint. Oh, wow. Now that is an oddity. Uh, yeah. And so each of our museums is divided up, and then you know, everything is unique to that museum because, as I said earlier, that everything that we have is real and genuine. And it's hard to have two of a one-of-a-kind item. Uh, so each one will have a shrunken head, but of course it'll be different. Each one of them will have chastity belts uh, and, co- and uh, nailed collars. Mm-hmm. But each, of, each one of those are different. And so we do have some duplication. We have wax figures that... Uh, that show that depict the largest man that ever lived, eight foot eleven inches. Wow! Uh, and the heaviest man who ever lived. And you know we have some wax figures, but that's obvious that it's not the real person. Uh, so we have all those in all of our museums as a frame of reference and stuff. And we have a lot of interactive, fun games, illusions that people can play and participate in. And you own other types of property, speaking of wax. Um, you have a wax museum, too, right? We, we do. We own, uh, we own the Louis Tussauds Wax Museums, and that was Madame Tussauds' errant nephew. Oh, dear. Who learned his skills from her, but then went out on his own. And we acquired the rights in the 70s for those. And we've got seven of the Louis Tussauds Wax Museums. Then we also have Haunted Adventures, which are year-round uh, haunted houses with live actors in them. 
we have moving theaters where you go in and sit down in a seat and actually become part of the movie. It moves around. You go you go through a big mud puddle on your on your bicycle and you get sprayed with water oh. and wind blows in your face and it those are a lot of fun as well. Then we have miniature golf. We have some really crazy miniature golf courses and as you can imagine from Ripley uh, there's always a little quirk and a little twist. Uh, you go to putt and you think you're going right to the cup mm-hmm. and a gopher will bounce out of the hole and knock the ball. <laughs> and then as you go by, you start cussing or whatever and a cow will talk to you. Oh, and wow. Some things like this. Uh, then we also, what we're really proud of is we have uh, two world-class aquariums. We have a aquarium uh, of Myrtle Beach and then we have the aquarium of the Smokies in Gatlinburg. Both of them are highly accredited, uh, both in the top 10 most attended aquariums in the country. And they're very classy. And the thing that we brought to the aquarium business is entertainment. Uh, so many aquariums that are run by the cities and municipals, uh, municipalities, are based strictly on education and conservation. So what we've done is we've combined education, conservation, and uh, uh, entertainment. Which is uh, together, so there's a lot of interactive, fun stuff to do in our music area, in our aquarium. Yeah, if we could find a way to combine entertainment with education, like what you just described, I think that would benefit the schools. And nothing against the municipally run aquariums that I've visited, but um, it's it's fish swimming around, and yeah. I can't watch that for. Just what they are. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and they serve a wonderful purpose. And a lot of kids are educated about conservation and about wildlife and marine life through these aquariums. Uh, but we wanted to take it. If we were going to do it, we were going to take it one step further, which we did. And we've got two more two more aquariums on the drawing board. And then in Niagara Falls, we own a Canada's largest indoor water park resort lodge. Uh, we own the Great Wolf Lodge in Niagara Falls. And it's got a like a 100,000-square-foot indoor water park built next to a Northwoods-looking lodge with 406 rooms in it, all suites. And it, it's wonderful because it's always 84 degrees in there. And, you know, Niagara Falls, Canada gets a little cold. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I... It's a great place for families to go. We've, we've had that. Uh, that'll be open three years this, uh, this uh, well, it was open in, in April. So, uh, so we're into a lot of different things. We have mirror mazes as well uh, with candy stores attached. Uh, we have a, a laser maze built into our uh, facility in Grand Prairie, Texas. And oh, wow. we've got four or five more concepts on the table, too. Again, all the same thing. Two, three-hour or less experiences aimed at families. Uh, and you don't have to pay an arm. Well, I think what you've described is perfect for uh, those of us who are planning our our summer vacations. And all of these different entertainment venues are based in originally Mr. Ripley's collection of oddities. And I think that's what's so cool about about that. And who knows, maybe someone listening will be fortunate enough to have their collection evolve as Mr. Ripley did his. And, you know, we're, uh, Harold, we're always open right now to acquire collections. Oh, okay. Uh, 
individual items. So if your wife is telling you to get rid of your collection, give us a call. She's forever uh, telling me that. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I used to have a great collection of pigs uh, until I got married. Oh, I've got uh, uh, I've got a basement full of baseball cards. Dive at that particular point, but uh, yeah, we uh, we are actively acquiring. And we are, because with all, all of our aggressive expansion, we're in need of new items. Okay. And so, you know, you can give me a, uh, you can email me directly at O'Brien at Ripley's.com. Uh, or you can go on our website and push the contact us button and go through, uh, get into archives that way. But probably the easiest way would be to just contact me directly then I could, uh, and tell me what you have and then I could pass it along to our research and archivist department and go from there. Can you give us an example of something you've acquired this way? Um, well, yeah, we, we acquired a one, I think it's one-tenth size model of the Space Shuttle Columbia oh. made out of 600,000 wooden matchsticks. My goodness. It's 13 feet long. It's got wheels that turn. It's got the big bay that opens up and the big crane that comes out of the back. And it's, it's, it's wonderful. Uh, so we've, we've got that. We've got some matchstick people made out of, uh, uh, or made uh, uh, in the likeness of mermaids, of uh, mountain men. We also just, just acquired uh, some portraits made out of old audio cassette tapes. That is so cool. Beautiful. They really are. And so, you know, the stranger the better. Uh, we've got, we own the world's uh, uh, largest beer stein, and <laughs> along with it, Ripley's own beer stein collection that he owns. Oh, that is so, so cool. But we're always, yeah, we're, we're always looking for uh, funky and quirky and unusual artwork uh, and unusual collections. Well, I hope that in the future, as you have things that you, you come across, you'll stay in touch because I'd love to have you back on the Collector Show to talk more about um, these kinds of collections and Mr. Ripley and all the things that you guys go have going on. It sounds like uh, sounds like a full-time job, Tim. <laughs> you said it. Well, coming up... Yeah, but, but it's not work. It's not work. It's, it's fun. Oh, it would have you to know, be. When you wake up in the morning and check your email and a, a, a lady's trying to sell you a... Uh, a picture of a cow with her grandmother's portrait uh, photoshopped on the on the face of the cow. <laughs> well, if you're not having fun, something's terribly wrong. I want to I want to thank Tim O'Brien for being with us um, the last couple of weeks here on the Collector Show. We've learned just a, a whole whole lot, and uh, Tim, I really enjoyed visiting with you. Thanks for being with us two weeks in a row. Absolutely, my pleasure. Coming up next, it's the Found Collectible of the Week with Heather Gallego. Stay tuned. Well, it's the middle of summer, and last week we started talking about different kinds of roadside attractions that have all different kinds of collections at the heart or at least as part of the attraction. And this week, our found collectible expert, Heather Gallegos, is going to introduce us to another part of the United States where roadside attractions and collections go hand in hand. And Heather, welcome back. 
Hi, Harold. Thank you. Now, where are you taking us this week? Today, we're going to start moving down that Atlantic seaboard to the mid-Atlantic. Okay. We're going to cover New York, Massachusetts, uh, Pennsylvania, and New Jersey. Okay. Okay. All right. Now, let's, uh, and to just sort of give everybody listening background, maybe you didn't hear last week, as people start to plan their summer vacations, we thought it would be fun to talk about different kinds of roadside attractions where collecting or collections would be part of the fun. So Heather's put together this great series for us, and this is part two for us. So where would we go if we were in Massachusetts, Heather? Well, Massachusetts, everyone I think thinks of Boston. So why don't we start there? All right. And we can go to um, a collection over of over 3,000 miniature toys. Mm-hmm. It's located at the Children's Museum, their Hall of Toys. Mm-hmm. And these miniatures have been on display since 1911. Wow. So, yeah, I think, you know, anybody who collects toys, and that's in some of our found collectibles we've talked about. Yeah. Um, so what a great way to kind of start out. You can you know, while in Boston, do so many other things, but that just sounded great. Well, there's a lot of history associated with Boston. There's Paul Revere's ride and and lots of things I think that people would catch anyway, but a collection of that many toys, I think, is kind of off the beaten path. Absolutely. 3,000. That just blows my mind away of how many that is. So to be able to go look at it. And the cool thing is if you're there on the weekend, the admission on Friday is only $1 after wow. 5 p.m. Yeah. So, you know, in these tough times, it's really an economical way to, to see something that you love to collect. Yeah, I think that's another thing that's fun about this series is that there hasn't been anything we've talked about, whether it was with uh, Tim O'Brien from Ripley, who's been on with us now two weeks, or any of the stuff that you've talked about that was really expensive. Right. And a lot of them that we covered in our, on our last uh, installment, a lot of those were free. And really, some of the ones that we have today, too, they're also free. And oh. free admission. We always like that. Love free. Yeah. I love free. <laughs> free is so good. So where would we go after the toy collection? We would head to Gardner, Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. And this is the home of the world's largest chair. Chair. And so, yeah, chair. <laughs> a, a sitting chair. <laughs> if you collect furniture, which... I think my husband sometimes thinks I do. Um, you can yeah. go and see this, this, this chair. But it has a really great history because it started out in 1905. It was a 12-foot-tall mission-style chair. Okay. Well, then some other states decided to get in on the action with having the world's largest chair, mm-hmm. especially like in North Carolina, known for their furniture making. Oh, yeah. Um, so in 1927, they built a 13-foot, 6-inch-tall chair. And um, so that then became the world's largest chair. A slightly bigger chair. A slightly bigger chair, that's right. So in 1935, Gardner decided they were going to take it back, and they built a 16-foot-tall colonial Hitchcock chair. All right. I'm sure that people who collect furniture know what that is. Yeah. I I don't. I don't either. But but the word colonial, it sounds impressive. It does. Well, the next one's going to sound even more impressive. Okay. Thomasville decided that, you know, that's it. We're going all out. They went with an 18-foot tall Duncan Fife, which I've heard of a Duncan Fife, and that's a very specific style. Sounds like a musical then, instrument. Yeah, a Fife. He plays <laughs> the Duncan Fife. <laughs> or he's Duncan and plays the Fife. Yeah, or that, too. <laughs> okay. 
this chair sits on top of a 10-foot tall pedestal. Now, see, I think that that's cheating. I know. You, you can't it, count your 18-foot chair if 10 foot feet of it is pedestal. Right. Well, that would, that would be kind of a miniature chair because then it would, well, six foot. I guess that's a regular size chair. Anyway, LBJ actually sat in this chair, even though Lady Bird didn't want him to. Ah. And I don't know why. Yeah. But anyway, the chair is now in in um, in Garden Gardner, Massachusetts. Okay. At one thirty Elm Street, even though it has quite the, the torrid history there. Now, can you um, could you climb up into it and sit in it, and somebody takes your it, picture and? It didn't say. I, I don't know. I, could you climb up into a six eighteen foot tall chair? I, that's very tall. That's pretty big. I'm not sure. Um, maybe with the help of a ladder, but still, that's really really tall. But the chair. Did you get your picture. The chair owners ought to be out there with a ladder and charge you a buck to sit in it and get your picture to taken. Climb up. Yeah. It did not say that in the report, but um, again, I just do want to bring up that most of this information I found on that roadsideamerica.com, the website. Right. So your listeners are really going to want to check that out. Okay. A good thing about that site is they will give you driving directions to get to these locations. Ooh. A lot of the places that I found, they're kind of off the beaten track. Yes. You know, they're not on your, your regular you know, like interstate, but mm-hmm. they're more on U.S. highways or rural routes. So um, check into that website because that'll give you directions on how to get there. I also found that they give really good information on hours and admission, um, and some some of the reports even have pictures associated with it. Cool. So, a lot of good information on that site for sure. So as we moved on from the world's biggest chair, where would we go next? Let's go on to New York, because there's quite a few things in New York that I want to touch on. Okay. And we'll start off in Kirkinson, and I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Kirkinson, mm-hmm. New York, the world's largest garden gnome. <laughs> it makes me happy. <laughs> the world's biggest gar- Would he still be considered a gnome if he was that big? I know. I, it seems a little odd. It does seem strange. Yeah, he he's reportedly the world's largest. Okay. So if any of our collectors out there collect gnomes, this is a must-see. And he is on at 5755 Route 209. Mm-hmm. And they are open daily from 10 a.m. to 8 p.m. Okay. And they also offer some other gardens and miniature golf to do while you're there. That's fun. I didn't find, yeah, I didn't find anything about admission, so they, there probably is an admission fee for that one. Okay. Okay, and then... For our railroad collectors, mm-hmm. we have the largest wooden freight station ever built for New York Central Railroad in Medina, New York. Okay. And this is located at 530 West Avenue. It's open Tuesday through Sunday, 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. So if any of your listeners collect trains... Oh, yeah. In, yeah. Um, the, the curator will provide guided tours dressed in full New York Central conductor uniform. That sounds like fun. Yeah, Yeah. we've talked about collecting trains on the show a couple of times. We generally do that program around uh, Christmas time, but it's a year-round hobby. Right. Yeah, absolutely. They also boast a collection of over 300 fire helmets at the museum. Wow. Because the place is actually called the Medina Railroad Museum, Um, and they are open. Oh, I told you the hours that they're open, right? Tuesday through Sunday, 11 to 5. Admission. Very inexpensive. Six dollars for adults and three dollars for children. Very affordable. Yeah, absolutely. Very affordable. I thought so. And then we're going to keep moving here All in right. um, New York. We're going to head on to the Catskill Mountain area. Okay. In Mount Tremper, they have the world's largest kaleidoscope. Oh, sweet. This is 
just fascinating. The kaleidoscope is a converted grain silo. Oh, it was just, <laughs> it's huge, Harold. That's 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 a big kaleidoscope. <laughs> it's giant. Um, it was designed in the 1960s by the artist Isaac Abrams and mm-hmm. his son Raphael. I guess he was like a psychedelic artist. Um, yeah. Good guess. <laughs> the, the 60s and uh, kaleidoscopes, I think that's a good guess. They go hand in hand. Yeah. And they offer, you get to go inside the silo, and they offer a 10-minute um, history of America through the kaleidoscope. <laughs> that sounds like fun. It does. I guess there's pictures of, like, Abraham Lincoln and um, Union soldiers. In kaleidoscope art? In, in kaleidoscope art. And there's also American flags and other things that would be associated with Americana. I'm impressed. <laughs> it's only a $5 admission. Right. And it is open daily from 10 to 5.30. And this is located at 5340 Route 28. Okay. In- How can that be bad? It sounds like fun so far, and it also sounds incredibly affordable. So, um, and who's who would ever guess that there was a kaleidoscope the size of a grain silo? Really, though, how inventive is that? That's I mean, very creative. You got a silo. What you going to do with it? Well, make it into a tourist attraction. I think it's really neat. I'm I'm impressed. It's right there. So visit New York. All right, that is a, that is a good one. Um, let's keep moving. Let's keep moving. Yeah. Yeah. Let's head to. New Jersey. Okay. And when we get to New Jersey, let's stop into Trenton, New Jersey, and view the world's largest tooth. It's located at 637 Sloan Avenue. Okay. In Trenton. (laughs) Yeah, Trenton, New Jersey. This is a sculpture, actually, of a human molar. It's 15 feet tall, roots and all. (laughs) That's huge. It's gigantic. That's not an actual human tooth, obviously. It's just a replica. A model. It's a model, if you will. But it actually leads, if you take um, I-295 towards the world's, um, or excuse me, towards a sculpture part, Mm -hmm. this is kind of on the way to it. So you could get out and get your um, picture taken with it. It's just alongside the road. Another uh, another good... um Advertising tie-in for a, a toothpaste company, the world's largest tooth, brought to you by Crest. That's right. <laughs> that would be when you first when you first said it was the world's largest tooth, I'm thinking blue whale tooth, dinosaur yeah. tooth, but it's a human molar. And how human tall molar. did you say it was? Fifteen feet tall. Man, it's giant. And is there any kind of other than the sculpture garden? Is there any kind of dental tie-in, or just somebody woke up one day and hey, let's make I a big tooth? other tie-in hmm. oh no i think it was just someone's creative idea man that's <laughs> you know a dentist might like to see that that would be impressive it would make a good calling card it would make a good postcard it would make a good ad that's right the, a picture on a website the so the opportunities are endless they, they really are so <laughs> your your next toothy destination for us would be where heather we'll go on to millville new jersey okay and we have the museum of american glass Oh, okay. And this is located um, at 1501 Glasstown Road. It's open Thursday through Sunday from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Mm-hmm. And the reason, I, I didn't know this about New Jersey, but um, they have a, a considerable amount of sand in the soil. Mm-hmm. So there has been glass factories in New Jersey for more than 200 years. I didn't know that. I didn't know that either. But the cool thing about this museum is they boast the world's largest glass bottle. 
And this bottle is 7 foot 8 inches tall, and it holds 188 gallons. Of? That is, of anything that okay. you want to put in it. It's just a giant bottle, a, a clear glass bottle. But for glass collectors, there is so much here. They offer a whole bunch of different exhibits that um, rotate. Mm-hmm. They do bottles, marbles, lamps, uh, Tiffany lamps. They also do light bulbs. They um, also do a paperweight fest. So if you have a collection of paperweights, this would be the place to go. You know, we've never talked to a paperweight collector, but it does. I bet that's something we should we should think about. I think you should. Yeah. If there's a it, fest involved. Yeah, exactly. Well, it used to just be a weekend, and now it's kind of grown into a whole fest. A oh, man. That is so yeah. cool. And they have some obscure items, like some glass coffins and some other things. Oh, no, that's, faces. that's a little creepy. That is a little creepy. But the macabre, you know, that's kind of part of all this, right? Well, the that's true, too. Yeah, kind of different. So I thought that was interesting. That is interesting. Yeah, and then we can move on to Flemington, New Jersey. Okay. We go down to North Lands, and that's with a Z, not an S. North Lands, okay. Yeah, North Lands. They offer the world's largest miniature indoor train track. Oh, cool. I thought that was kind of cool. They also offer an outdoor train track that you can ride on, but if you're a train collector, you, I think, want to see the largest miniature indoor train track, of course. Yeah, I think that would be impressive because of the... uh, I mean, like we've talked before, we have a lot of train collectors, and we've done train shows. And the world's biggest train indoor track, that would be worth the ride. Absolutely. The admission is a little bit this is a little bit more than we've seen for our other um, sites. It's about $13. Okay. But, you know, I mean, if you can take a ride on the outdoor track, it sounds like it has a lot of things to, to see. Yes. Um, it's open Saturday and Sunday, 10 a.m. to 6 p.m., and then Monday through Friday, 10.30 to 4 p.m. And this is located right on U.S. Highway 202 on the north side of Route 22. Okay. And the address is 495 U.S. Highway 202. So it'd be, it's right off the highway. It'll be easy enough to find. Absolutely. You'd be right able to get there pretty quickly and convenient, you know, if you wanted to continue on with your day. Exactly. And now we're going to move to Pennsylvania, and I have a couple of things to see there. Okay. We'll start with Pittsburgh. Okay. Um, there is the St. Anthony's Chapel, located at 1700 Harper Street. Yes. And they have a collection of over 5,000 religious relics. Wow. This collection is second only to the Vatican. No kidding. Host, I know. That's amazing. Um, they have relics from Mary Magdalene, John the Baptist. And they even claim to have a piece of the true cross. Oh, that's awesome. But I thought that was very interesting. The admission is free, but you can leave a donation. Yes. There, there are nuns there that will take you on a tour. Mm-hmm. And this is located at 1700 Harper Street. In Pittsburgh. In Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. I had no idea such a thing was in North America. Uh, 5,000 religious relics that. That's an amazing collection. Yeah, and just the ones that you mentioned would be worth going to see. Absolutely. I mean, with everything from Mary Magdalene, you know, with the Da Vinci Code, that's oh, yeah. got to be so popular. So I, I, would, I would definitely love to go see that. Yeah. My next trip to Philly. I may have to uh, see what I can do. See what we can do. road trip. Yeah, that would be fun. Uh, and, Absolutely. Uh, get to Pittsburgh on, on business often enough. I think I'll include that in my next. I think Off so. time. All right, so let's go on to Hopwood, Pennsylvania. Hopwood. 
laugh for. That was a kind of interesting name. Fun to say. Yeah. <laughs> they have the Great Cross of Christ. And this is the largest, the world's largest steel cross. It is 60 foot high, and it stands on top of a six foot tall concrete base. Mm-hmm. If you're standing on the base on a clear day, you can see Ohio, Pennsylvania, and West Virginia. So you can three, see the three states. That's pretty impressive, that, I thought. And I'm sure that it's related to, um, you know, the steel industry having been right. such a big part, and we're still a big part of, mm-hmm. of life in Pittsburgh. That's right. Um, the admission is free. Man. It is open daily, 8 to 4, and on weekends from 9 to 8. And it is located at 887 Jamonville, J-U-M-O-N-V-I-L-L-E Road. So I don't have directions for that one, but, but it, again, you can look it up. You can look on uh, the Roadside America website right? and find all of these that Heather's uh, brought to us. Mm-hmm. And next week, sure. m- more Roadside Attractions? Absolutely. We're going to continue this series. So next week, I think we'll start heading to the east, east excuse me, I can't speak, <laughs> the east, north, central, midwest. So we'll cover Michigan, my home state. Yes. Uh Ohio. So next week, you won't want to miss part three of our series on collecting and traveling in the summer of 2009. This has been a good couple of weeks of shows because we've talked with uh, Tim O'Brien from from Ripley's and we've started Heather's series on these roadside attractions. And I think if we've learned anything from these last two shows is that your collection can evolve into something that's not just fun for you but something that you can leave behind and have a very positive effect on American culture. So I want to thank Tim O'Brien for being with us for the past couple of weeks, and I want to thank my good friend Heather Gallegos for being with us. Come back next week for more on The Collector's Show here on Web Talk Radio. I'm Harold Nickel. Thanks for listening. If I had a million dollars If I had a million dollars Well, I'd buy you some art Thanks for listening to The Collector's Show. See you next week. If I had a million dollars I'd buy your I'd be rich.